I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Last week, Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison and Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost joined me for a vigorous bipartisan conversation about the role of state attorneys general in addressing police reform, protests, and other constitutional challenges facing states today. Hope you enjoy their many insights, and please check out our other America's Town Hall programs, which we run every week on our companion podcast, live at the National Constitution Center. General Ellison, you are at the center of the most... uh, closely watched case involving the police in America today, the, uh, arising out of the, the tragedy involving George Floyd in, in Minnesota. You, you're limited in what you can say about that case, but you've had an extraordinary background as a representative for Minnesota in the U.S. House of Representatives and as a civil rights attorney, separate, uh, specializing in uh, civil rights and defense law. Uh, tell us about how your background as a civil rights attorney and a representative, has influenced your approach to the Floyd case? You know, my background, I've got to go at least back to a man named Frank Martinez, who uh, is my grandfather. He was organizing black voters in the 1950s in rural Louisiana. And he would uh, do fish fries or community meetings, show up at church and try to convince people who have never had a chance to participate in democracy that they really did have every right to participate in democracy. They signed up a lot of people to vote, and some of those people were ordered off their farms. Some of them were threatened. Some of them were beaten. And he was uh, threatened and uh, and, and, and beaten himself. And even had, uh, my mom will tell stories about how they refused to sell him gasoline in the city of Natchitoches, Louisiana, because he was, uh, what they said, stirring up a fuss. And um, he, uh, they burned across across the street from their house, and uh, they called my family's home so much, threatening to kill my grandfather, that they sent my mom to a boarding school because they couldn't afford for her to be there if some tragic event happened. So my family, my mom, my everybody, they said, "Look, we don't want you to grow up to be angry. We want you to grow up to have a sense of responsibility." And my mom, you know, was a social worker for many years. She did juvenile sex offender group where the judge would send her cases. uh, And if those kids um, made it through the program, they could leave it without a juvenile adjudication. Uh, And she spent her life doing that. She worked on education reform, lobbied the governor in Michigan where she moved and was able to do a lot of things that way. So that's the conversation I grew up around. And uh, my dad is a psychiatrist. He's 91 years young now. And uh, he still is very active and interested in what's going on in the world. And personally, uh, it was, um, I don't know if it was a foregone conclusion that I would do the work that I'm doing, but I kind of felt feel that it's sort of something that I uh, do quite naturally and um, have, uh, you know, I, I left, I was in Congress and enjoyed being there. I never got sick of Congress, never said, I'm done with Congress. I just thought that being a state attorney general was a better job and would put me in a position 
to be of greater use to my neighbors. I bet you General Yost agrees with me on that. Um, that you know you can do a lot as an attorney general that uh, it's just tougher to do as a member of Congress, uh, basically because you've got to work with uh, you know 435 other people in the House, 100 other people in the Senate. As attorney general, if you feel that the law uh, requirements of the law are met, you can act. And 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 so uh, I was I got into the work, uh, and I did it because I really feel that the government, our democratic government. Uh, and I don't mean partisan, partisan, I'm small d Democrat, should should really be uh, on the side of promoting the general welfare, protecting human rights of all, should make sure that people who uh, have individual rights, uh, should make sure the government leaves people alone. And, you know, whenever we do live in a society where the Constitution requires that the government not impose upon people uh, when it when it should not, and... Uh, you know, so these so these issues of civil rights, human rights, civil liberties, and policing uh, are issues that I come to uh, sort of very, very naturally, and just really honored to be able to talk about those things today with you and General Yost. Thank you for sharing that inspiring story and your remarkable background as a as a lawyer and representative. Wonderful to hear about your dad, a 91-year-old psychiatrist. My dad is 93, and he's also a psychiatrist and very different background. There you it's go. Great that we've got them. It's great that we've got them both. General Yost, uh, you also have a really interesting background as county auditor and, and then as a journalist as well. Um, first, tell us what the county auditor does, and then tell us whether your background as a journalist in any way influenced your approach to your job, uh, and, and, and then give us a sense of what the state of the debate about the police is in Ohio. Thank you. Uh, I was a, a newspaper reporter for the old Columbus Citizen Journal, which was a Scripps Howard paper. And the, the motto uh, was a quote from E.W. Scripps, the founder of the chain, uh, was give light and the people will find their own way. And that really is, uh, that motto kind of sheds light on my career path. Uh, I'd probably still be a newspaper reporter if uh, my paper hadn't gone out of business in 1985. But uh, I've always been about finding the facts, finding what is objectively true, and fighting for justice. Uh, so in my time as a, a newspaper reporter, later as a, an attorney in private practice, um, and yes, I did uh, criminal defense work for a while, uh, early on in my career, uh, through my time in public service uh, as uh, county auditor, which is basically the fiscal officer for the government in Ohio, uh, county government in Ohio, uh, through um, my years as prosecuting attorney and now into state service, uh, it's always been about holding power accountable and in check uh, and doing what's right, finding the truth. And, and fighting for what's just. Uh, my dad is not a psychiatrist, uh, although he's still with us. I'm very proud of him. Uh, grew up in a family with six kids. Uh, he got uh, promoted to from Columbus to Detroit and didn't want to go uh, with his company, so he quit and started his own company. Uh, one truck, one man and built it over 35 years to a successful business that employed more than 300 people around the state of Ohio. I 
learned a lot about integrity and honor and hard work uh, watching my dad build that company. And I'm honored today to be Attorney General. And I agree with you, uh, uh, General Ellison, uh, being Attorney General uh, gives one far greater reach to do justice and, and to seek the common good than uh, being uh, a single congressperson. Although I value and honor their work, uh, this is immensely rewarding. That's a remarkable statement that both of you made. And friends in the audience, just uh, let's pause to say how significant it is that uh, these, these public officials, a former uh, representative says that being a state attorney general is more significant in terms of the impact you can make. And that's now what we're going to explore as we dig into these two central questions of defund the police and also the standards of excessive force that officers uh, are subject to. Uh, General Ellison, the Minneapolis City Council on June 26 unanimously advanced a proposal to change the city charter to allow the police department to be dismantled in the face of widespread criticism after the killing of George Floyd. Tell us about that proposed amendment, which would replace the police department with a new Department of Community Safety and Violence Prevention. Is it likely to pass? Does your office have any role in supporting or opposing it? And do you think it would be a good idea to, to fund the police? Well, let me tell you this. Um, I think that uh, what I've done is tried to interpret what I hear community and some of the local officials to be saying. Um, I will not claim that I've been the author of this call, but I have listened to it. And, and I think that what they're saying is that, look, this is about more safety. It's about greater safety. Right now, we don't. Uh, we clear about one in four rapes in Minneapolis. Uh, we right now we there's a lot of gunfire in North Minneapolis, South Minneapolis. We really have, we we are glad it's not as bad as some places, but it's not nearly as good as it should be, and it goes on uh, with some degree of regularity. Uh, we have domestic violence, we have theft, we have fraud, we have all kinds of problems. This is not designed to take away an agency that addresses these things. It's designed to be more effective and simultaneously reduce human rights abuses. So that's why uh, the charter is, is, is they're not going to call the institution the police department. They're going to call it uh, the Department of Public Safety and Violence Reduction. But they will have people who investigate theft, domestic violence, sexual assault, all these things, but they will reorder it with a different set of priorities. Um, and so I, I think that when you hear dismantle the police, obviously um, that's somewhat um, alarming. It, it, and as I talk to the people who propose that kind of label, they meant to be provocative. Why? Because they've been calling for reform measures for 20, 30 years, and it felt that they really haven't gotten anywhere. A few things on training here, civilian review authority, then that got denuded. And so they're really of a mind now where they want to say, we've got to keep people safe, but with more important, but, but in line with that mission, we've got to uh, look at some of the fundamental historic suppositions that pre pre prevent us from being able to do that as effectively as we could. And so uh, they've begun a, a year long series of conversations. They're, they have a trip planned to go visit Camden, New Jersey, which did dismantle its police department 
and then reconstituted another agency that does the same thing. Uh, and they've had some very good numbers. Um, uh, they, they, it's not perfect. And Minneapolis is not going to, I don't believe, uh, just, you know, clone you know, the Camden experience. It'll be a Minneapolis um, expression. But uh, at the end of the day, that really is what's going on. Um, and by the way, um, you know, there are uh, a number of police officers who have said, look, I want to be on a, uh, on a force where we have the trust, respect uh, of the public. We don't want to be uh, a part of an institution where the public who we rely on does not you know, feel that we're doing what we're charged to do. And so we have not, we've gotten a lot less uh, opposition than you might guess. Uh, but I do agree that the people who've made the proposal need to put more flesh on those bones because having a provocative tagline is not going to get it done. But, uh, to, but they've stepped forward and be, begin to really put some greater definition. That's fascinating to learn that Camden is a model for Minneapolis. Uh, Chief Charles Ramsey joined us for a program last week, and the Constitution Center is working with him to train Camden officers to learn about the Constitution by talking to school kids in Philly. And we'd love to uh, work with both of you to do that kind of constitutional training as well. And very interesting also to learn that you're thinking of changing the name of the police department. Uh, Ralph Hendrickson in our Q&A box says, policing implies force. Could we come up with a different term for the work of the police department? And you're suggesting that that's exactly what Minneapolis is doing. General Yost, tell us about what Ohio is doing. Uh, Governor DeWine has laid out a series of proposals that he's asked lawmakers in Ohio to pass, including creating a state board of law enforcement officials and members of the public to license police officers like teachers and lawyers, not allowing officers to use chokeholds on people except in life and death situations, and not allowing police departments to conduct internal investigations. There are other proposals. Tell us about them and what you think would be the best path forward in Ohio? Well, the most important thing we can do is to have reforms that allow us to um, remove the few bad actors that are on police forces. Look, I, uh, I got to know police officers very, very well during my time as a prosecuting attorney. I was in a, a county that uh, was small enough that I uh, along with my staff, tried cases. So I got to uh, know these folks, know their work, see how they conducted themselves on the job. And there is no doubt in my mind that the horrifying videos that we see popping up from uh, cell phones here and there and uh, in most of our big cities uh, certainly are really the, still the exception. Now, they're horrible, and we need uh, to make sure that that stops. I, General Ellison and I agree uh, on that. But the fact of the matter is the vast, vast majority of these officers are uh, good-hearted, patient, disciplined uh, professionals who are doing a very difficult and dangerous job. Uh, they're still evil in the world. There's still people that are trying to harm others. Uh, and what we have is a very few people who are not fit for the job, 
who are acting out. And we see it in the disciplinary records. It happens over and over and over again. And because of civil service laws or collective bargaining agreements, um, police departments are not able to purge their ranks. It's the only profession in America that doesn't have a licensing regime and where it's almost impossible currently to get rid of bad actors. So among the many things that the governor and I have proposed, I think perhaps the most important is the licensing regime that allows us to um, get rid of the few people that are the sources of those appalling videos. And yes, let's get better at training. And yes, let's clarify um, use of force doctrine. Uh, let's make it uniform and not a hodgepodge that differs from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, the most important thing that we can do is get rid of the few bad actors so that the uh, good actors can resume their day-to-day -day work. I have to... Uh, on a personal note, yesterday I traveled to Toledo, Ohio. Uh, a 26-year-old officer answered a call on July 4th uh, in Toledo, uh, a personal safety check. So he was uh, sent out because there was a report of a man who was seriously drunk uh, in public, and uh, his job was to go make sure that person was was safe, get them services if they needed. Was He was not trying to affect an arrest. He was gunned down in cold blood. Uh, and yesterday I was at his funeral and met his young widow and his two little boys. That is the face of law enforcement. Men and women who are going out, trying to do the right thing, trying to help and make their community safe, showing valor every time they put the badge on their chest and it often turns into a target on their backs. We need to not uh, tar them all with the same brush. Thank you for that story. And thanks for also emphasizing your proposals with Governor DeWine, including the licensing requirement that picks up on a comment that Richard Finch has made uh, in our Q&A box. Many other countries require police officers to require much longer training, some for almost two years. Might that translate, he asked, into a different outcome for the officers in the community. General Ellison, in the comments that you have been able to make about the Floyd case, you've suggested that the case won't rely on the question of qualified immunity because it's not a civil issue. But you did say that officers have some allowance to use deadly force, and it'll be interesting to see if that's brought up in the case. Can you describe the constitutional standards for deadly force? What has the Supreme Court said about those standards? And should they be changed or reformed either by courts or legislatures? Yeah. So the case that we rely on now is a constitutional um, U.S. Supreme Court case called Graham versus Connor. It's a case that uh, uh, basically says that you have to use reasonable force based on what a reasonable officer would do uh, in a situation. I think that there is room to look more carefully at this. Uh, and I think that uh, California has already taken some steps forward uh, to change their use of force uh, where they have required use of uh, the standard of um, sanctity of life, that you should avoid use of force where you can, that it should be proportionate and necessary uh, as opposed to simply authorized. Um, you know, the, the fact is 
So much of how um, an officer will apply that use of force, you know, is determined by the culture of the community and the department that they're in. Um, the uh, officers do have the authority to affect an arrest, which most people don't want to be arrested. So they have some authorization that you and I don't have. Uh, but at the same time, those uses of force have been construed uh, in, uh, in very different ways over different times in different places. So we do need standardization. And I, I think that, uh, you know, Graham versus Connor actually was an improvement on what the law was before, because then we had a case called Tennessee versus Gardner, which authorized the use of deadly force on a fleeing felon. And it was in, in, in that case uh, that, you know, uh, that uh, so many officers relied on. In fact, uh, that led to some tragic results. Uh, and so I think that use of force uh, policy, something that is being considered very carefully by legislatures and departments all over the country, uh, and there is a growing trend towards saying, you know, even if you may be authorized to use force, if you don't need to, um, to protect yourself and others, you shouldn't. Uh, you know, there's a case uh, that was described to me by uh, leader, police leaders in Camden, where somebody actually had a knife in a room and the officer said, put the knife down. The guy didn't do it. Uh, I know uh, situations where the officers might go in there and disarm the guy. And by shooting him, what they did is they closed the door and called some mental health professionals, said he's contained. He's not hurting anyone. Even though he does have a weapon, he did brandish it. We don't necessarily need to use that level of force. Uh, because even though it could be authorized under Graham, it's not necessary. It's not proportionate. Uh, and we do want to remember that so often when officers use deadly force, um, there are situations where the officer really by was literally doing nothing and was attacked, perhaps in the situation General Yost just mentioned a moment ago. But there have been other situations where we've seen where the officer is actually saying, you know, move. And the guy doesn't move fast enough, so the officer approaches the guy. And then the guy doesn't move fast enough, so the officer puts hands on the guy and starts putting him down. Then the guy makes a furtive movement, which could be interpreted as a threat. And then the officer uses deadly force. The point is, let's not bring the noise if we don't need to, right? Let's reuse restraint when restraint is the smart thing to do to keep everybody alive. And so this is a training challenge. This is a challenge matter for the state legislatures and it's a matter for departments. And I will tell you this, you can write whatever the policies you want. If you don't do what General Yo said, which is to make it so that the department can cleanse itself of people who don't obey the rules, those pretty words are not gonna matter at all. So I would join General Yost in agreeing that we need to look at collective bargaining agreements, and other sort of instruments to make sure that the chief really is the accountable source for discipline in that department. We've seen situations in Minnesota where officers who have, I mean, they've, they've done a lot of bad things to a lot of people, excessive force, people in custody, people confined, people handcuffed, and then the, the chief fires them and then the arbitrator puts them right back on the force. What message has that arbitrator just sent to everybody else? The good officers that General Yost was talking about, they're demoralized. They're like, wait a minute, where's the standard of behavior around here? 
We had 12 officers write a letter um, criticizing the behavior of their fellow officer in the George Floyd case. Going public, that's a big deal. And so what it, what it, we do need for the sake of good officers, we need to make the trans transition to rewarding the good officers and ridding ourselves of the ones who are not fit for the job. Thank you for teaching us about two important cases, uh, Graham v. Connor and Tennessee v. Garner. Uh, the Graham v. Connor case says that the question is whether the officer's actions are objectively reasonable and objective reasonableness will be judged, as you said, by the perspective of the officer at the scene, not in hindsight. It can include questions like purport whether the action is uh, proportional and necessary, uh, not just authorized. That's a standard that California, you said, is thinking of clarifying. And then you told us about the Tennessee and Garner case, which I teach in criminal procedure. As you say, it's an incredibly reasonable case, and it involves the fleeing felon and the circumstances under which officers can use deadly force to stop a fleeing felon. And the Supreme Court in that case said that a police officer can use deadly force to prevent the escape of a fleeing suspect only if the officer has good faith belief that the suspect poses a significant threat of death or serious physical injury to the officer. We'll post both of those cases in the chat box. And General Yost, tell us about your experiences with the Graham and Connor case in Tennessee and Garner and your understanding of what the national standard, the constitutional standards for excessive force are, and whether you think those, whether you think those standards should be reformed by courts or legislatures. Well, uh, General Ellison has adequately um, provided a cliff notes on those two cases. Uh, and, you know, the, one of the developing arguments that we have uh, is qualified immunity, um, which shields uh, not just officers, but public actors and the performance of their public duties. Um, and it's a judicially created doctrine, and there's some thought that the Supreme Court may revisit that uh, at some point. There were 19 cases uh, uh, seeking cert uh, this last term, and uh, the uh, uh, none of them made it on to the uh, short list to be decided. Uh, but I don't think that uh, argument is over. But I'd like to go back to something that General Ellison uh, talked about, um, which is uh, the minimum force necessary. And that is, in fact, in Ohio, the standard that we train to. Um, but this gets a little murky. And here's where we need to think uh, very carefully about this. Because the question then becomes, what, is, what are we talking about? If Are we talking about a, a criminal action uh, and whether a criminal prosecution of, of the officer should result? Are we talking about a 1983 civil rights action, which is a civil uh, matter with a lower standard of proof? Uh, are we simply talking about um, job action and discipline for violation of work rules and policy? Uh, because all of those present a different issue. Uh, and the, the the devil, if you will, is in the question of necessary. In whose judgment is it necessary? And, and the current uh, case law, it is a reasonable officer uh, kind of standard. The challenge with uh, uh, 
trying to make that the uniform standard uh, is we can very quickly end up with people who are having to make split second decisions on the street without enough uh, information, without being able to see maybe what a surveillance camera blocked down the street from a different angle shows. They've got what's in front of them and they have to decide right now because their safety or the safety of another member of the public is in jeopardy. Are we going to dampen their ability to react to that crisis by, uh, for example, exposing them to criminal prosecution by saying later, after we've looked at all the body cam uh, footage and all the surveillance footage and talked to all the witnesses and gotten all the points of view out there, uh, that somebody uh, with uh, the luxury of 400 hours, that's about what our average is in Ohio, to uh, on a, a lethal use of force investigation, 400 hours of collection and the ability to sit in your air-conditioned office in a soft chair and decide what was necessary. Um, and I, I think that that is a very dangerous thing for us to put on the backs of the folks that are out there protecting us. So trained to that, yes. Uh, and that's why I think coming back to uh, our uh, proposals that the Governor DeWine and I, why I think the uh, reform proposal to have licensure, professional licensure of police with rules of conduct is so important because the right place for that uh, level of uh, review, I think, is at the licensing board, um, not in a court uh, of criminal law. Now, let me stress that there are instances uh, I've prosecuted uh, police officers uh, for wrongdoing in my career. Uh, right now in Cuyahoga County, um, I have a team that is working on uh, a variety of uh, physical abuse cases of inmates by corrections officers. We had a, a horrible incident uh, where the uh, inmate was actually restrained uh, in a restraint chair. They were strapped down uh, and were beaten. We had another one with a restrained inmate who uh, uh, the, one of the COs sprayed uh, OC spray in, into her eyes while she was already strapped down. Clearly inappropriate uses of force, uh, and we're going after them. So I, I'm not I am not one of these folks that doesn't think there should be accountability. But we need to think very carefully about the dangers on the street and the life and death mission that our officers are on as we consider these questions. The questions you raised about reforming qualified immunity, track those raised by the Ohio Fraternal Order of Police who are on board with a lot of the reforms that you and Governor DeWine have proposed, but say that reform of qualified immunity would have a negative impact on the recruiting and retention of qualified people from across the country. General Ellison, understanding that qualified immunity may not be at the center of the Floyd case, um, can you share thoughts on its reform, qualified immunity, as General Yost said, gives officials performing discretionary functions immunity from suit unless the, uh, the plaintiff can show the official violated clearly established statutory or constitutional rights of which a reasonable person would have known. 
As General Yost said, uh, Justice Thomas on the Supreme Court just a few weeks ago said the court should revisit that standard, even though it declined to do so so far. Uh, do you think the standard should be revisited and what effect would that have on both law enforcement and on police misconduct? Yes, I think that the very um, strong protection of the existing qualified immunity law creates moral hazard. I think that uh, it's so protective that it allows people to not have to operate at their very highest level of professionalism. I, you know, And I think statistically, if you look at the history of qualified immunity, when the standard was lower, uh, you, you saw more accountability when it was raised. And as General Yo says, it's a, it's a judicial doctrine. You just saw less accountability. I think if you want, if the goal is to have the most top performing uh, professionals you possibly can get, you've got to create, you've got to have an environment where people know that there's accountability when they violate the rules. If you say that you pretty much can do whatever you want um, and you've got to really, really, really go way over the line before there's going to be accountability, then, I mean, the, the bottom line is that uh, you're going to get more bad behavior. Uh, as simple as that. I mean, and, and so often we are we are not talking about these, you know, dark alleys, furtive movements, quick uh, split second decisions. Those we can all kind of agree you know, you know, an officer needs discretion in that situation, and you're not always going to be right. But, you know, what about the situation where the 75-year-old man was pushed to the ground in Buffalo? What about that? What about that? Is that okay? Oh, well, I, you know, but they first said it was actually he tripped. Then they say that, um, that, that uh, then the video showed different. I mean, there's, there's so many, there, we have tape where officers are spraying chemical agents out of the car and, and people who are just standing there. So what I want to say, you might say, well, those are clearly wrong. Well, are they? I mean, if an officer says, oh, I thought I, I, I thought that person could be a threat. I mean, you could literally come up with anything. I mean, as an attorney, it's your job to formulate arguments on behalf of your client uh, as long as you're not lying. Now, of course, you can stretch credulity <laughs> But, I mean, the bottom line is the problems that we're facing are not so much those decisions that reasonable people can agree the officer needs discretion on, and you can't just second guess them. That's not really where the problem is. The problem lies back where it's a little clearer to all of us that this behavior isn't right, and yet it gets protected from civil liability uh, because the standard for qualified immunity is so high. I think that we would have better professionals, better, we would reward the good officer much more uh, often if we raise that standard and expected officers to perform at a high level uh, and um, and then say, yeah, those, those dark alley situations, split second situations, we can all agree you need some room, but not on some of this other stuff that we see. General Yost, any responses you'd like to make? And then I'll uh, introduce a, a, another question. Thank you. I, 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 would, I would like to respond. Um, I, I, I 
really question whether there is a, a moral hazard out there for our officers because they feel like they can get away with anything. Um, maybe it's a difference in our backgrounds, but I talk with a lot of police officers, oftentimes in relatively unguarded situations, and they're very concerned about getting sued uh, and very concerned about the consequences of that. They don't feel at all that they're uh, invulnerable from civil liability. Um that goes back, though, to the, the point that I made at the beginning, which is uh, while I agree with the, uh, some of the things that uh, uh, General Ellison talked about, uh, spraying OC spray out of uh, a police cruiser, I, uh, uh, clearly not a, an appropriate uh, tactic and not one we would train to in Ohio. Um, and I can't imagine any officer would defend that. Um, but we need to be able to remove officers who would exercise their judgment in that uh, or discipline them, uh, perhaps. But the, uh, the at the end of the day, uh, I, I don't believe that removing qualified immunity is going to have uh, a good effect and there could well be unintended consequences. The better approach, if we are really concerned about qualified immunity, is perhaps to tweak the standard. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, we, we couldn't leave it in place with something less than what amounts to a willful and wanton uh, standard, uh, you know, that, that that couldn't be uh, tightened up. Uh, but I, I, I'm not in favor of... Uh, as a practical matter of eliminating qualified immunity. Well, that's a little bit awkward for uh, a guy like me to say who's uh, such a, uh, a critic of judicial activism, uh, uh, most judicially created doctrines I am not a fan of. Thanks for reminding our audience that the qualified immunity doctrine, which came from cases like Pearson and Ray in 1967 and the Harlow and Fitzgerald case, uh, was judicially created. Harlow and Fitzgerald was 1982. Justice Thomas has argued that it isn't faithful to the original qualified immunity statute um, and therefore should be reexamined. So uh, it's a complicated debate that we will revisit at the Constitution Center. General Ellison, we have a bunch of questions about the intersection of the First and Second Amendments. Kim McGee, who's an assistant attorney general, writes by email, it's a commonly held belief in the U.S. that an individual has a right to protect, preserve his real and personal property. For example, I saw this defense invoked regarding the St. Louis couple brandishing weapons from their lawn and porch as protesters went by. That's a belief the country needs to explore. How does this right to protect, preserve property impact the right to peaceful protest and the right to carry and use a gun? You know, this is an interesting question, right? Because, um, you know, I, you know, I, nobody is going to say that if you're going to hurt another person or damage their property, that that should be protected activity. It's not. We know that. That's obvious. The real question is, if you are lawfully protesting, if you are protesting uh, uh, in a, uh, for about an injustice that you perceive to be uh, a, a serious matter in our in our community, like you know, excessive force and police brutality really is, I mean, then then those folks who are standing out there brandishing firearms, I mean, to me, that that's a concerning thing because in view, my view is 
that yes, you may have a First Amendment right to express yourself, and you may also have a Second Amendment right to have firearms on your own property or if you're licensed to do so, or if you're authorized by law to do so, but at one point, are you not simply menacing another person? You know, and what right do you have to do that? You know, if you have a gun and it's, 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 if you have it out, you know, it's loaded and people are peacefully protesting, you know, that, that raises some very con- serious concerns to me. I don't think that the First and Second Amendment were ever designed to shield uh, what essentially amounts to a terroristic threat. You know, there are some mosques, um, you know, Muslim houses of worship uh, around the country, including in Minnesota, and there were people who'd go out and protest outside of them saying, you know, Islam sucks or whatever, they, some horrible thing. And they're probably protected to say that. They probably have the right to say that. And they may have the right to have a gun. But when they put those two things together and go outside a house of worship where people are lawfully behaving, is it, have we, you know, are we not pushing the boundaries of what those two rights uh, allow for? Uh, I'm very concerned about that. Uh, I think that, um, you know, the fact is that, you know, the Second Amendment is a very interesting um, piece of jurisprudence. Uh, and I think that we have strayed very far away from the original intent of that particular provision. Uh, I think that, um, and even if in the Heller case, it you know basically Scalia said it's you know the average person can can have the an average gun, they can't have an M16, they can't brandish it against other people. I mean, unless they're legally authorized to do so. And yet now we're in a situation where we have folks bringing AR-15s into state legislatures, uh, calling out the governor and uh, insulting and in threatening ways all under the auspices of the First and Second Amendment. So I think that this is something that we're going to have to really, really grapple with because I, I because I think that uh, folks have got to be able to express themselves about matters that they think are important. That's how change happens. We couldn't have a civil rights movement if we were to not come to an evolved sense of what the First Amendment protects and what it doesn't protect. You remember Sullivan versus New York Times. That's a case where the original case where they were suing civil rights activists because there was something in an ad that wasn't absolutely precisely right. And they sued based on on a theory of defamation. And then the Supreme Court ultimately said, wait a minute, you know, if you, you know, you've got to prove actual malice if you're talking about uh, 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 public figures or public officials and public officials in the first, in that case. And if you can't prove that it was knowingly said as a falsity, then, you know, that's just the cost you pay for putting your name on a ballot. And so, I mean, we, we have looked at the contours of the first amendment and second amendment in the past in order to accommodate, you know, the, the pe- people's right to be able to say what they feel is critical is true and helps advance our society towards a higher level of, 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 of equality and justice. So those are some of my thoughts um, on that matter. I'd you know, be curious to uh, be in the conversation. This is really exciting. I feel like I'm in a constitutional law seminar, and we're talking about the landmark cases involving the Fourth, 
First and Second Amendment. Uh, General Yost, General Ellison just mentioned the Heller case. And as he said, Justice Scalia in that case identified four exceptions to what the court held was an individual right to keep and bear arms. He said nothing in the opinion should call into question longstanding prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill or laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools or government buildings or laws imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms. Uh, share with us your thoughts on the intersection of the First and Second Amendments. Does Heller strike the right balance? Or as Patricia Panzera asks, can the remedies that the generals are discussing be accomplished without gun regulation and constitutional reforms? So let's start off by recognizing that something that just because one has the right to do something, it doesn't make it a wise thing to do. Um, the folks that have gone down, Ohio is an open carry state. It's legal to carry uh, a firearm uh, unconcealed without a permit in Ohio. Uh, the folks that would come down to the state house to uh, protest or counter-protest with an AR over their uh, shoulder, uh, have that right to do so. Uh, and that's not menacing. Uh, menacing is not a subjective thing where you feel uh, that somebody's acting in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable. Menacing is a criminal act, and it requires a uh, an overt act to confirm a threat. Um and simply carrying a firearm doesn't do that. Um, now, again, uh, while I have a concealed carry license uh, and support the Second Amendment and uh, been a hunter and an outdoorsman uh, my entire life, I uh, wouldn't carry a, a firearm down uh, downtown to a, a protest if I were to go to one. I don't think it's wise. Uh so there's a difference between wisdom and, and what one has constitutional right to do something. The intersection uh, of the First Amendment and the Second Amendment uh, is a, an interesting one. Uh, but the issue that was raised uh, with regard... So, for example, if a legislature were to uh, pass a, a law, a statute that said that uh, guns were forbidden during protests on statehouse grounds. I think that that falls within Justice Scalia's uh, in, uh, thoughts uh, in, in the Heller decision. Uh, I'm not saying that I want to see that law, but uh, I think that's something, for example, that could happen uh, constitutionally. But the, the St. Louis case was raised, um, and it's important to realize that uh, those people uh, were protesting on private property. You have no First Amendment right on somebody else's property. Uh, you uh, can take to the streets. You can say whatever you want. Uh, but if you are trespassing, if you're on private property without leave to do so, um, the your First Amendment right is not implicated there. Uh, and while I would not have acted the way uh, those two citizens in St. Louis chose to, uh, particularly I would have avoided 
pointing a rifle at my wife's head uh, as I was holding it. The uh, it, it is hardly a, a menacing threat uh, when you're standing in front of your property and people are encroaching upon your private property uh, to uh, be holding that, that weapon. It's time for sort of closing thoughts in this completely rich and engrossing discussion. And General Ellison, the, the first uh, round is to you. As you see what's going on in Minnesota and look across the country, what are the reforms, either legislative or constitutional or legal, that you think are most promising and most important to ensure effective policing and a more perfect union? You know, if I may just say so, I think we need to acknowledge as a society that we have a problem. And I'm very happy to see that many people from a diverse set of uh, perspectives, you know, uh, agree that there's uh, office, uh, problems. I mean, I'm glad that General Yost mentioned the reforms he and, uh, and, and Governor Dwine are working on. We come from different political points of view, but there is some consensus that we got to do something because the situation we have is not serving us as well. Um, and uh, I also just want to say, you know, that this problem is longstanding. I don't know if you remember uh, the sociologist, uh, the sociologist who uh, did the doll study in uh, Brown versus Board of Education. That particular sociologist was brought to speak at the Kerner Commission in 1968. And when he was giving his presentation, he said, you know, I've, I appreciate this Kerner Commission report, but I got to tell you, it's very similar to what the 1943 report that was written to the McCone Commission report that was written, a whole host of other reports that were written where what we see is you know, uh, often, uh, not only, but often uh, black and brown persons in very uh, disturbing conflicts with members of law enforcement. And we keep on going through this cycle and we've got to ask ourselves if a problem is this chronic, why do we keep having it and don't we need to do something differently? So I'm glad we are at sort of a moment of inflection. Sooner or later, George Floyd's case won't, will be something that happened a long time ago. And I hope we use this moment while it's still fresh and urgent to really make those changes that we've been talking about. And I'm going to mention some of those now. I just wanted to say I'm proud to be in this conversation because it helps propel us toward really solving a chronic sustained problem. Martin Luther King talked about police brutality. So did Malcolm X, by the way. So did the Black Panthers. These are people who are very diverse in their political approach but all agree on the on the essentialness of the problem. You know, uh, I will I will mention uh, that there's a lot of history here. But whether you're talking about the Stonewall riots where LGBTQ people rose up to kind of assert their rights, that started with a bad interaction with policing. Or you want to talk about Jimmy Lee Jackson killed by Alabama State Troopers, which led to the movement for the voting that culminated in the Voting Rights Act. This is a problem. And we got to deal with it. Thank you for doing this conversation. What are some of the things I think we should do? Number one, I do agree that we've got to create an environment where officers who violate departmental standards, violate the law, violate the criminal law, are fired. We've got to create that environment. 
And the truth is that if you're an officer, and I will agree with uh, General Yost, there's a lot of great, great Americans on police departments. But, you know, you got to ride next to this thumper who, if you were to tell on him, you're going to have repercussions on the job. We've got to create an environment where officers can expect that if they report a violation of departmental or policy or law, that those people are going to be handled and that you you will be able to work with people who you can actually trust and obey the law. We've got to reform the system. And that means dealing, I think we should prohibit collective bargaining agreement provisions, which pro, which deny the chief the ability to administer discipline, including discharge. Now, I do believe in uh, due process. The officer who's discharged should be able to appeal to the city council, to the mayor, somebody public, but not a nameless, faceless arbitrator who doesn't have to answer to anyone. Number two, I think we need to uh, have investigation and prosecution of police outside of the normal process of criminal and uh, investigation and, pro and prosecution. Why? For the reason that General Yost mentioned. These folks, they go hunting together. By the way, I'm a hunter. I, I love to hunt pheasants and turkeys. And General Yost, if ever you want to do it, I'm game. But my point is, if you're hanging out with these guys in a deer stand all weekend, and then on Monday, one of them is accused of doing something unlawful or in violation of a departmental regulation, you're, there's no way you're not going to, you know, sort of like see it their way a little bit or be inclined to. It's just human. Let's take the human element out and say that the State Bureau of Criminal Apprehension is going to be in the investigator and maybe the attorney general or some other office is going to do the prosecution. That way we can have a little bit more comfort that it will be done uh, without the normal um, human element of familiarity. Another item I would say is that we, we do need to ask ourselves, how can we not invest in housing, because we really haven't, not invest in health care for everybody, a lot of people are still uninsured, even after the Affordable Care Act, not invest in mental health, not invest in all these things, and then tell the cops, you go deal with it. I mean, we as a society have failed the police as an institution. Because we take every social problem that we don't want to deal with and say cops handle it. And then when they go shoot somebody and they're not supposed to or chokehold them to death and they're not supposed to, we're upset. We have we have all kinds of uprisings and we're upset and we want reform. What if we took the burden off the shoulders of the police and said we are going to we're not you're not going to have to arouse homeless people out of the park because we're going to give people homes to live in. Well, you're not going we're not going to ask you to arrest people over a fake 20 because we're going to have folks who do those kind of property crimes that, you know, don't involve armed men with guns, um, you know, having to go deal with that. We're going to, you know, deal with the problems of society that will lead. We're going to deal. We're going to have a real re mental health response for people so that officers don't. A 24 year old guy who got out of academy a few weeks ago isn't going to be asked to deal with somebody in an autistic meltdown, which is what we're asking them to do now. It's not fair. So um, those are just a few ideas for now. And again, I just want to thank um, the, the, the National Constitution Center and General Yost for, and you, uh, Mr. Rosen, for a great conversation. Thank you so much for those eloquent final thoughts, for invoking 
the Dahl study in Brown versus Board of Education by Kenneth Clark. Some have called the Floyd case, the your Brown versus Board of Education and, and, and the new Brown for the nation. And uh, we're all watching it uh, closely. General Yost, the last words are to you. Your closing thoughts for our great audience about what legal, constitutional, or judicial reforms you think are most promising for achieving fair policing and a more perfect union? Well, uh, General Ellison and I actually agree on some of those things, the police licensing, uh, independent investigation and prosecution are things that we've uh, proposed here in Ohio. And further, uh, we need to do a better job of training. Uh, We need to fund training. Uh, and we need to fund the uh, local uh, officers because when we take somebody out of service to train, um, the police department has to fill that 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 shift. Uh, it takes seven officers to have one 24-hour shift seven days a week, uh, 52 weeks a year. Um, so taking people out of service uh, very quickly has an impact on the street. But I, I, there's two things that I want to mention in closing, as closing thoughts. Uh, the first is the defund police uh, issue. Um, yes, let's bring in uh, partnerships. Let's uh, do what we do in Columbus, for example, where there's actually a specialized team of 10 uh, people, five officers and five mental health professionals that respond um, to the uh, mental health type calls, uh, which certainly are on every police department's docket. Uh, but the notion that we're going to defend the defund the police, words matter. Uh, defund police means to take the money away from police, and that means that we're going to have less resources uh, to accomplish those functions. Why, why do we even have government in the first place? Uh, Let's go back to Thomas Hobbes and the natural state of man. Uh, Nasty, brutish, and short, he said. Uh, In in the natural state, uh, mankind, humankind, uh, the strongest take from the weakest. Uh, Your person, your family, your property is not safe. Uh, And the reason we have government is to preserve that, to have public safety, uh, to have the rule of law. Uh, because there are, there is evil in the world. There are people that want to take your stuff, and if they can hurt you or enslave you, they will. Uh, th- that is the first function and most important function of the government. Uh, I understand that it's a, a sticky hashtag, but look, the city council president of Minneapolis, when asked about this by CNN, affirmed that defund police means defund police. She said she envisions a police-free future. I don't want to live in that kind of a city uh, because it will be anarchy, and you'll have a lot more than that couple in St. Louis out there with with firearms on the street. It's not a place we should go. Uh, The Me Too movement didn't mean, yeah, I sympathize with what's happening to those women. The Me Too movement happened because words matter. And women were saying, what happened to those women with Harvey Weinstein? Yeah, Me Too. That happened to me too. That's why it was so powerful. And words mean something. No means no. 
And defund police means defund police. It's a it's a dangerous idea. Uh, but finally, let let me conclude by. I imagine some of the people on this call saw a video of a young African-American man in his teens talking about the rules that his mother taught him for surviving in the world. And the video was him reciting these things. You could tell that his mother had told him this over and over and over again. Uh, Always get a receipt or a bag when you're in the store even if it's something just as small as a piece of gum. Don't look at a white woman too long. Uh, Don't go out of the house without a shirt. Things that I would ask my friends in the majority community, did your mom teach you those things? Things that, uh, rules that assume that you start out a suspect, that you're going to be blamed. My mom didn't teach me that stuff. I guess that most of my friends who are white didn't have that lecture from their moms about keeping the hands on the steering wheel at 10 and 2 if they get pulled over and to ask permission before they get the driver's license out of their pocket. That video, that young man's testimony, was proof beyond a reasonable doubt that racism not only exists in America, but that it, it, intended or not, is endemic enough that it's a fact of life for those United States citizens of color. And as we're talking about police reform, I think it's important that we recognize that we don't have fundamentally a police problem here. We have a societal problem that has a law enforcement component. And it's time that we change hearts and minds. Uh, and perhaps we can have another uh, discussion at some point in the future on how we might do that after all this time. Uh, But I appreciate the opportunity to be part of this conversation. Thank you so much, General Yost, for those closing thoughts. And we would be honored to have another conversation. And I am so grateful to both of you and to the National Association for Attorneys General for starting this great partnership that bring together attorneys general of different political perspectives to discuss areas of agreement and disagreement about the Constitution. It is extraordinarily educational and very illuminating, and it is very meaningful for the Constitution Center to be able to host the conversations. So friends, thank you all for joining. Thanks for your great questions, and please join me in thanking Generals Yost and Ellison for a wonderful conversation. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by the National Constitution Center's AV team and produced by Jackie McDermott and Tanea Tauber. Research was provided by Grace Zandi and Lana Ulrich. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone who may enjoy a weekly dose of constitutional debate. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, passion, and engagement of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. You can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership, or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.